The Road to Moscow by Robert Swipe Part 3 Thursday, August the 30th, 2007 A Tone Poem Arsenal 3, Sparta Prague 0 Arsenal win 5-0 on aggregate Glasses are clinked to the memory of Liz and Joe Today would have been their 48th wedding anniversary Then Coronation Street eats up the half hour remaining before the game kicks off Roy, David Amos MP and Hayley, Gary Neville Have gone to the funeral of one of the latter's aunts And the former is with typically pedantic and solitary rectitude Wearing a black armband It looks exactly like the hastily applied and rather sad strip of black electrician's tape that former Arsenal skipper Tony Adams used to wear, in preference to the more elaborate, spelling-it-out mark of captaincy usually worn by the senior player in the side. It always seemed so unshowy, the forlorn funereal stripe suggesting less that an honour had been conferred on him than that he bore a heavier burden of grief than all the others, as if he were the chief mourner of the side, and, like Roy, cared alone enough to show it. And suddenly, there he is, Tony Adams with Jim Rosenthal, the devil incarnate, reluctantly observing that other, that other painful ritual, the ITV pre-match bantering sesh. He squirms and shuffles in his seat, at one point almost lying horizontally, long legs twizzled tight like a corkscrew, his comfy chair become a table on which Rosenthal will inflict each hideous new torture upon him. It goes on and on, Rosenthal, a sadistic Olivier, to Tony's writhing Hoffman, until the diabolic one finally puts us all out of our misery by asking Adams a question to which a series of tensed arm gyrations of unknowingness might seem an eloquent reply. How far can Arsenal go in the tournament this time, Tone? Rarely can a commercial break have been so warmly welcomed by studio and audience alike. If there were a film on his life, I'm sure that Tony Adams' biopic would be called something corny like Addicted, and they'd rope in all the great and good from what remains of the British film industry to make it. Eccleston as Adams, John Sims as, Mert, as Merson, Ian Hart as Dixon, John Hanna as a sexually ambiguous George Graham, and so on. But Adams is one of the few British footballers of recent years whose story genuinely is worthy of dramatisation and, as such, perhaps deserves a little better than the standard cinematic fare. It's a tale worthy, in fact, of a great auteur. I can hear those tragic Italian eight-strings already. See the camera arcing in on a scrubbed and grainy 18-yard area. Inside its confines, a shadowy figure goes through his pre-match warming-up routine. One hand on a hip, the other arm upstretched as the titles roll. A Paul Chardoff, Irvin Winkler production. Written by Paul Schrader. Directed by Martin Scorsese. Starring Robert De Niro. The monochrome is wounded by the lettering as its title fades up. Bold and red as blood. Raging Donkey. We flash through the games. Michael Thomas pounds into the box to score the second goal that wins the league for Arsenal at Anfield in the season's final game. 
another title in 1991. De Niro rises high in slow-mo above, above an implausibly athletic foe Spurs defence to head home the winner of the 1993 FA Cup semi-final at Wembley on some Hollywood lot, a ragtail of bogus gooners in historically inaccurate replica shirts yankily serenade him. Donkey won the derby, donkey won the derby, tra-la-la-la. Two more Wembley finals, two more winners' medals. The Cup Winners' Cup held aloft the following year. The braying donkey taunts of the crowd replayed ironically on the soundtrack as Copenhagen weeps with joy. Then Marty turns his camera to the life lived off the pitch. The ceaseless boozing sessions with a hideously accurate CGI Martin Keown, the atonement of the training ground, the layer upon layer of bin liners, flagellating swathes that wrap the penitent flesh, sweating out the drink, expunging all the sins ahead of the game. Then the vivid car smash, sombre-lipped, Caprice applies despairing boo-boo kisses to a dark and brooding bruise. Finally imprisoned, the same opening warm-up routine, this time paced out within the confines of an even smaller jail. Succumbing to despair, De Niro moans, De Niro wails, De Niro weeps with every toe-destroying kick aimed at the cold, dank walls of his eternal cell. Moaning, weeping, lost. Redemption, though, of a kind. 3-1 up at Highbury, Everton beaten, another title won. Mark Strong, Steve Bold, clips a probing ball behind the soon-to-be-losing sides back four. Adams takes a touch, steadies, and then with his left foot lashes home. Behold the man. He stands, legs astride, both arms now upraised, before the worshipful North Bank. A man reborn, donkey no more, raging no more. One final sweet coda, Wembley, another final one. Philip Seymour Hoffman, Ray Stubbs, aims a microphone his way. You never knock me down, Ray, he'll say. You never knock me down. But that's only half the story, if that. It skips so many other interesting parts. The piano playing, the poetry, the Thomas Hardy books, the degree in sports science he began. All those attempts to find another sort of life. Part two, as he describes it, to dark, satanic Jim, are just so many ways to fill up all the empty space, just as the boozing filled the gaps between the games. Drinking pushed Tony Adams to the brink, only for a love of the, love of the game to somehow drag him back. Similarly, the diligent and earnest undergraduate was lured back from the ivory towers of Academe to the nervous rigours, the ritual of the dugout, football's gain, Portsmouth's gain, as, and even Paul Schrader could not have scripted this bit better, with them he'll return on Sunday to his spiritual home at Arsenal. But you sense an Adam's loss, as if all of this, the coaching, the media work, the keyboards and the quill, can never make up for having lost the only thing he loved. The only thing that counts, the playing, the thing you can't get back. Footballers have many blessings, but you don't envy them their curse. Who else has to live with being finished at 35? Who else sees the glories of youth become a care home hell in the blinking of an eye as that final, final whistle blows? If there is a tragedy about Tony Adams, and I believe there is, it's that he hasn't been able to let go. 
like the Brian Clough imagined by David Peace in his remarkable book The Damned United. You wonder if Tone's life too has perhaps been frozen within the confines of the 18-yard box. In football, Clough attacked that box, attacked life in much the same way, expecting it to budge in sheer awe at his outrageous talent, his unshakable bottle, his sheer nerve. And many times it did, and that was his genius and his hatefulness combined. If Peace has hit on the essential truth of Cloughy, then you can read his managerial career as the playing out of an extended revenge at fate for the premature demise of his career. Adams may have had his back to goal, but you get the same sense of discomfiture now, watching his contortions as he plays the unwilling pundit as when he was a player, as ill at ease in victory as in defeat, always wanting more, the past dead with the whistle, the next game now the only thing. Will he do a cluffy, use management as an extension of his will beyond his playing years? If so, just how will Adams play out those demons? What will he do with his part two? Maybe that's why he's so nervous, not drunk again, as we uncharitably infer from his tortured awkwardness on screen. Apprehension, perhaps, brought on by the conflicting loyalties thrown up by his return to the club he served so faithfully and so well, or maybe just impatience. A howl who knows that one day he must become another Henry, the fourth, not the fourteen, and come back to us transformed. No longer Tone, but Antony, the prince-in-waiting no longer, now our returning king. For surely, if such things as character and destiny count for anything, there's only one man big enough, one man arsenal enough, to fill Arsene Wenger's shoes when the time eventually comes for him to leave. As a player, Tony Adams had no time for transitions or excuses, was always chomping at the bit. Perhaps the apprenticeship at Portsmouth is only so much dead time before the proper work begins. If so, his restlessness makes sense. Some, you feel, are born to rage. Arsenal takes seven minutes to kill off the tie. Walcott's cleverly angled cutback is swept in by the Czech Brzezinski against his former club. Eduardo, the striker formerly known as Prince, feeds Fabregas in identical fashion for the second on 68, before scoring a third himself just before the end. Clareb exchanges a joke with Le Boss as they embrace after the game. I can't lip-read, but I'm sure he said something along the lines of This time I'll win it for you, I promise. We'll see. Another serendipity. In the group stage, we draw Slavia Prague. So another walk-on part returns. You couldn't script it better, could you? But then there's only so much luck. I'm sure I'll use all mine up well before next May. Thursday, August the 30th, 2007. Money doesn't talk, it swears. We rewatch Don't Look Back, D.A. Pennebacher's film of Bob Dylan's 1965 British tour. There's a scene in it where Bob finally gets to meet Donovan, the much-heralded British Dylan, as he's been touted by the media and pretty much everyone who's crossed the path of the American original, much to the latter's wry incredulity. He's a great guitar player, mind, a well-intoxicated Alan Price tells Dylan. Better than you. I'd always read the famous meeting between them as having been a humiliating one for Donovan. He'd sung and played for the visiting folk poet and done so nicely enough, only for Dylan to rub the cavernous gulf between their two talents right into the nose of the Scottish folkie. 
every syllable and strum of Bob's performance making his rival's fire appear punier, paler in comparison. But now I'm not so sure. I hadn't noticed before that it's Donovan himself who quietly requests the song. Dylan seems happy to acquiesce, performing It's All Over Now, Baby Blue, as the young pretender has asked him to. Listening, Donovan's cheeks don't appear to redden as they would if this were really summer basement. No, he's spellbound like the rest of the room. Enraptured by the song, its singer unimpeachable. The little nods he gives are not those of resignation. No, empathy perhaps. It's the sheer power of the song that slapped him in the face, not the egotistical toying of the man who is performing it. And Dylan's face is not, as I'd previously inferred, gloating so much as disbelieving. He nods and grins as he sings with all the sagacity of someone telling a brand new joke, one that no one else has ever told before. His face has the hilarity of power, the smiling wisdom of the only man in the room who knows the punchline to the joke. The strange tingle returns, the one he must have felt when he wrote it back then, when he was the only person in the world who knew what was going to happen next. Yonder stands your orphan with his gun, crying like a fire in the sun. That orphan bit still cracks him up. He can hardly keep a straight face as he sings. It's as if he cannot quite believe it himself, and so he smirks, perhaps slightly ashamed that he's getting away with it, that such playfulness could be mistaken so readily for revelation. No, any smugness isn't aimed at Donovan, whose repose is that of the trance-waker, as the song concludes. I had a girlfriend once called Baby Blue, he mumbles sleepily to himself as the spell the song cast eventually breaks. And so did Bob Dylan. Her real name was Joan Baez, and she's even now in this same room with them. Was there when Dylan sang, sardonically mouthing along with his yonders, his crying, his orphans, his fires and his sons. Of those listening as Bob sings, she alone in the room, you feel, could fully understand the moment, hear the portent of the song. She must leave now. He already has. And pretty soon she did, not looking back. But that break-up is frozen now in time, in song, in film, for all to see, to hear that final brush-off line, strike another match, go start anew, frozen apart for good, estranged forever. Now that's humiliation. There's another fabulous scene that captures Dylan's manager, Albert Grossman, Wall from Winnie the Pooh, and a British theatrical agent who looks exactly like Bruce Forsyth. As they run rings round the BBC and Granada TV performance bookers, playing them off against each other like two mischievous uncles, inflating the purse for exclusive broadcast rights to Bob's only television appearance well beyond what they know they'd originally have settled for. The only shame is that Pennebacker doesn't tie this in with Dylan's performance of It's Alright Ma, I'm Only Bleeding, segueing from their avuncular ruthlessness to the bit in the song where Dylan sings, While Money Doesn't Talk, It Swears. Money doesn't talk, it swears. And right now, former Arsenal vice-chairman David Dean has a cool 75 million in his pocket. Every last tenner and twenty of it mouths a gleeful fuck you at the boardroom of the club he left in April of this year. I'll try to keep this brief. David Dean, Mike from Mike and Bernie Winters, bought 14.85% of the club's shareholding for £292,000 in 1983. 
Dean proceeded to transform the club, modernising its structures and building the platform for a new era of championship winning sides to be developed at the club, first by George Graham, then even more spectacularly by Arsene Wenger. Wenger was Dean's surprise choice as long-term replacement for the stopgap manager Bruce Rioch in 1996. As the man who sought out Wenger, regardless of what the markets might say, his stock will always be high at Arsenal. Not bad going for a man who, at the time he bought into the club, was described by chairman Peter Hillwood as being balmy. There's no money in football, he's supposed to have said. But fortunes can change. Dean now has one himself, and to the tune of 75 very, very big ones. But how much consolation that fortune will be to a man who lost effective control of the club he so evidently loves remains to be seen. Dean fell out with the rest of the Arsenal board over the move away from Highbury to the shiny new Emirates Stadium. The then vice-chairman was convinced that, with his connections at the Football Association, he could engineer the club's use of the new Wembley and thus be able to avoid hampering Arsene Wenger's activities in the transfer market by taking on the enormous debt building the new ground as necessitated. Whilst few would argue that there's no correlation between the financial straitjacket the club have imposed upon the manager and the slither down the league table, there are signs that the long term of the club is now rosier than any of its immediate domestic rivals. If that was the pain, it was relatively short-lived, and we may be about to start experiencing some of the gain. Nonetheless, without the benefit of such hindsight, Dean felt that Arsenal needed a big money backer if they were to be able to continue punching their weight in the face of big investments by foreign owners, first at Chelsea and Manchester United, and now, it seems, pretty much everywhere else in the top flight game. There's big money in football, and there is a lot more still to come once the clubs can negotiate their own rights and tap into the vast market of young Chinese who will soon be tuning into Premier League football, watching it on their mobile phones in their billions. That's why seemingly crazy sums are being bandied about by investors like Stan Kroenke, Mark Twain, who many thought best placed to buy the Gunners outright and ease Dean back into the Arsenal boardroom in in return for his share in the club. Kroenke may still have a role to play, but as so much of this season, this story is tending to do, Dean looked east, not west, to find his route back in. Red and White Holdings, a company set up by Uzbek billionaire Alisher Uzmanov, Alfred Hitchcock, bought Dean's shares, and now the pressure will be on the present board to shore up against these or other potentially hostile investors. Dean has seemingly ceded the power his stake in the club gave him, but he's a wily old bird. We have a saying at Arsenal that we trot out whenever there is talk of a crisis at the club. Arson knows, we say, and Dean, don't forget, knew about arson before anyone else. Maybe David knows too. Perhaps Uncle Stan and Uncle Uzmanov are just biding their time, waiting for the share price to go down before joining forces and cleaning up the club, like Brucey and the Wall, Twain and Hitch. Events, dear boy, events. The bane of Harold Macmillan's life. Events aren't too popular with football supporters either. Contrary to popular belief, we don't like incident, excitement and all that. We like routine, stability, order and calm. Who needs all that goal-mouth action? All those stirring fight-backs when surely it's preferable by by far to turn up and see your side score three or four in the first five or six, allowing you to relax and enjoy your players passing the ball amongst themselves, game comfortably over for the remaining 84 minutes. Who needs action? 
but writers are a different beast from fans. Born anglers in both senses of the word. We can't get enough of events. We have to see all the angles, make our plays and sell our souls. We're devious anglers in that respect, scheming, plotting, every hook, every line. But we're patient anglers too, wading out into the stream of life, hoping for a disturbance, something trembling the other sort of line. We wait for things to happen, try to hook them, net them, weigh them, snap them, and then we gently throw them back. So sure enough, there's the writer in me who feels the gentle tug and gently starts to play the reel, whose every impulse contradicts that of the fan. I worship the things, wish they were more if truth be told, my net bulging with them, all those wriggling, gasping, flapping events. And this is not only an event, well, I know it doesn't seem much, but it's probably the nearest we'll get to one on the road to Moscow. But it's also that rare and mystical bird, an event that also ties in. The gods who script the season have been working overtime for me. The Moscow final, the Russian millions, the Belarusian star of the show, then there's the draw for the Champions League. First one Prague, now another, and Sevilla, perhaps still mourning their defender Puerta, who we commemorated earlier. Stoibruk, Bucharest and Slavia Prague mean we'll have to make at least two trips to the former Soviet bloc before we go there for the final. <laughs> you see, whatever else you might think, I really am a believer. Only now it might not just be the team who take the road to Moscow. It might be the whole club. Sunday, 2nd of September 2007. Arsenal 3, Portsmouth 1. How sad we all are to hear of the death of Antonio Puerta. It's not credible that this should happen in the modern game. Also, it raises some questions. Was the player aware of any heart condition himself? Was the club aware? If not, why not? It's appalling to die from something that could have been detected and treated. However, it could also be the case that the player knows what he has and decides to carry on. That happened in France... A player called Omar Sanoun, a French international, knew he had a heart disease that could be deadly, but he decided to go on. He basically decided to take the risk of dying rather than not play football. Arsene Wenger's Match Day Programme Notes Before leaving for today's game, I start to watch the recording of Friday night's Super Cup final between Milan and Sevilla. All 22 players have Puerta, printed on the back of their shirts, the memento mori of his name beneath their squad numbers, a ghostly echo of their own. It's as if they're saying it could have been any one of us collapsing like that, dying like that. Any one of this haunted 22, but for the grace of God, dead at 22. When Renato scores, the severe players join him in celebration, huddled together, each points heavenward up towards the teammate they've lost offering this otherwise unexceptional goal to his memory. I don't get to see the second half. Don't know who won the game even, but it doesn't seem to matter which 11 Puertas triumphed, or if the game ended a draw. Sevilla play Ajax of Athens tomorrow night to decide who will join Arsenal, Slavia Prague and Stoya Bucharest in Champions League Group H. Sevilla are two goals up from the first leg, so chances are that their faithful will be making the trip to London on 19th September, when they'll no doubt unfurl the same Puerta Presente banner that summed up the spirit of Friday night's game. Rightly or wrongly, football is often described as a religion, 
Most Spanish fans clearly felt some transubstantiative force around the game, and that transcendent shimmer of shirts, their votive arms upstretched to the one they'd lost, was very, very moving. In any case, if football were little more than, a, than harmless escapism, you wouldn't know it from leafing through today's matchday programme. Aside from the tribute to Puerta, there's a memorial to Ray Jones, the promising QPR striker who died in a car crash last weekend. Next to that is a get-well message to Clive Clark, the Leicester City loanee who survived a similar collapse to Puerta's in a midweek game. Then there's a plug for HIV-AIDS charity Football Reaching Out for Africa, who are putting on a do at the Royal Albert Hall, hosted by Patty Boulay, no less, where you can pay and go and see Greg Dyke massacre Great Balls of Fire, apparently. Snowden 500 is a sponsored climb up and down the Welsh mountain in aid of prostate cancer. There's the obligatory helpline number for anyone affected by such issues. And we're only up to page 9. The Basra Challenge takes up most of page 10. Flight Lieutenant Alan Pluckrose, who surely should have been a 1950s inside forward with a name like that, and Corporal Dan Harmer, his opponent in defence, will run a mile for every Arsenal goal scored between the beginning of the season and the end of their tour of duty in Iraq, raising money for Bob Wilson's Willow Foundation. That's the charity the former Arsenal goalkeeper and his wife set up as a permanent memorial for their daughter Anna, who died of cancer aged 31. The whole of page 20 is devoted to Treehouse, ambitious about autism, Arsenal's charity of the season 2007-2008. Page 23 sees the launch of the Arsenal for Everyone initiative, which aims to celebrate diversity in all its forms at the club. It's been set up as part of the club's work towards achieving the intermediate level of the racial equality standard. Only intermediate? Pages 34 and 35 concern another initiative, this time devised by the Premier League. Creating chances, mm, nice one, is emphasising that community work is now more important than ever for football clubs around the country. On to pages 38 to 40, which detail Arsenal in the community. Right Now and Then is a film and poetry project for local school children based around Islington's literary heritage, Dickens, Orwell, Hornby, Charlie George's autobiography, etc. While the Arsenal Double Clubs offer a variety of courses to supplement the school and college curriculum. Former Arsenal reserve Danny Reebuck reports on his successful Israeli summer soccer camps and we are asked to contribute to the Arsenal in Galilee peace programme, the climax of a year of coexistence football among 12 Jewish and Arab towns and villages in northern Israel. If only you find yourself thinking the bloody government would get its finger out and help the way that Arsenal is, there'd be a better world and we could all get back to reading about the sodding football. In fact, it's almost a relief to reach the blank backing of the pull-out poster of Sesc Fabricas stapled to the programme's middle. But still the world of misery and pain outside the game intrudes. On page 45, Arsenal remembers. Billy A, remembering our true little gooner on your 14th birthday on September the 7th. Miss you loads, thinking of you always. All our love, Mum, Dad and Danny. Page 67 features a letter from Joyce Vernon, whose husband Les used to play for the club in the 1950s. He's now 72, she writes, and it would be lovely for him to see this matchday programme and cheer him up as he was due to go to the hospital on Thursday for a spinal operation. 
Finally, an interview with Arsenal physio Gary Lewin. It's titled The Heart of the Matter, and in it Gary gives details of how Arsenal's defibrillators and cardiac screening programmes should, God willing, prevent an occurrence for Arsenal in England, such as the Puerta tragedy. The real world finally subdued, we can read about today's opponents, Portsmouth. Manager Harry Redknapp is five victories away from his 400th winner's manager. John Utaka's nickname is the Torpedo. And today sees a return in Pompey colours of former Arsenal players Lauren, Canu, and as part of the Portsmouth coaching staff, Tony Adams. I've been looking forward to seeing Portsmouth play, but they don't seem to get going until the second half. They probably read the programme too. By then they're already two goals down, a coolie taken out of by or penalty that sends David James the wrong way after the keeper had brought down Van Persie in the box and a swivelling Fabregas shot from close range from a Gilberto knockdown at the near post. At half-time things are serene and calm, the only irritations being the nerve-jangling sleigh bells someone's insisted on bringing along and shaking continuously, perhaps by way of an oblique, Prokofiev-style Russian reference, and the slightly sinister connotation that now accompanies the Arsenal faithful's chanting of Red Army. But I needn't have feared. Sure enough, with the second period barely begun, there's the obligatory event. The lumbering Sundaros gets caught the wrong side of Canu, whose own history of heart problems is surprisingly absent from the programme's litany of woe, misfortune and tragedy, and brings the gangling Nigerian down. Senderos is duly sent off by Mark Halsey, a decision that, while strictly correct by the letter of the law, seems a little harsh in the context of an otherwise well-contested game. But then, Halsey is the refereeing equivalent of Coronation Street's uber-pedant Roy Cropper. Portsmouth somehow contrived not to score from the resulting free kick on the edge of the Arsenal box. The torpedo blasting a close-range exocet over the bar when it seems easier to score. Strangely, the dismissal appears to work in Arsenal's favour, as if the lessening of passing options has brought a clarity to their play. In the game's crucial period in the wake of the sending off, they hold their own and even manage to score a third, the lively Rosicki, who has thrived in the extra space that's come with the game opening up, takes Sesk's quickly taken free kick in his stride and blasts low past James from a narrow angle to seal the game for Arsenal. Or so you'd think. But no, seconds later, with what is either astonishing good fortune or outrageous skill, Carnu has allowed a seemingly harmless ball into the box to hit the heel of his size 14 boot and slice providently into the Arsenal net. Portsmouth come back strongly. Right black Right back Glenn Johnson coming more to the fore, a new signing Nugent looking lively, but Arsenal just about hold firm. They keep playing their assertive passing game and almost conjure a delightful fourth. A succession of first-time passes, the players spread across the pitch like a fan opening up. The ball eventually spirited out to increasingly assured young left-back Guile Clichy. His perfect cross invites Diaby to plant a header in the corner, only for the tall substitute to power the ball a foot or so wide. Arsenal cling on at a series of late Portsmouth corner kicks, but with three minutes of time added on, the visiting scummers begin to leave in their dejected lines of blue. I, I stay to watch the obligatory centre circle love in. The errant Diaby, who is wandering off alone for his bath, is called back to join his colleagues. So seriously do they seem to take this admirable show of community that it has to be completely inclusive. Probably something to do with that new initiative. 
We're briefly halted at the crowd control barrier while the tube absorbs our crowd. The mounted police in their lurid Chelsea away strip fluorescent bibs form a quota-driven snapshot of modern Britain, alternating white, black, Asian, male, female. They barely seem aware of us, appear bored and distracted, no doubt planning how they'll spend today's colossal overtime. I drink in the scene. The solid-built cockney behind the mobile burger bar proffers a long, drooping sausage to a time-honoured regular while his chubby Chinese colleague deals with the rest of the queue. To the side of their wheeled porter cabin stand three young Sikhs, turbaned and bearded, their clothes adorned with arsenal. An Irish-looking woman twirls a strange dervish in front of me as she tries to avoid a wasp. I look up at the question marks of the crescent moons on the Finsbury Park Mosque. On the tube, my head forced into a respectful bow by the restrictive arc of the doorway, I peer through the bodies and see a heavy-lidded Arab stood before a homburged Orthodox Jew with a straggly ginger beard. Coexistence football. A new initiative. On the train to Richmond, a pretty blonde in cool black shades twitters away on her mobile. Dobre, dobre, she twirls twirling her clog-like stiletto-heeled shoes as two peacock gaze oo and coo beside her. Someone looks up from their mobile. The Chelsea match update. Villa have just scored. I see the Russian blonde disappear off towards the shops of Richmond, still dobreying away into her phone, and I realise that this is it for two weeks now. No more football during the international break. Only England. I suppose that means that for the moment I'll have to tell you about England. England and me. England, me and Wembley. <laughs>